Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You're listening to the Companion Gun Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer. And today, uh, I'm going to do an episode on the dogs that left their mark on me. And I'm going to kind of address the concept of the once in a lifetime dog. So, um, before we get into that, I just want to do a few updates. Uh, the St. Hubert trial registration is live through the three rivers land land trust podcast. Uh, so if you haven't found that on, uh, on my social or anywhere else to this point, and you're interested, uh, in signing up for the St. Hubert's trial, which will be February 3rd and 4th, uh, it, in between Salisbury and Moxville, North Carolina, um, then, uh, go to three rivers land trust, uh, their website, which I believe is just www.threeriverslandtrust.org. I believe either way, a quick Google search will get you there. Go to upcoming events and down at the bottom of the list of upcoming events will be the St. Hubert's gun dog trial, uh, and register there. Um, they are, making a few changes to the registration, uh, uh, web page, I guess, if you will. So the form on the web page, um, it needs to have a couple of things added. One will be the classification. So if you're going to, you know, if you're going to plan to register a flushing dog, uh, then make sure you leave that in the comments. Also, let them know if you're going to be in the hunter's class or the trialer's class. The trialer's class is going to be uh, for a broke dog stake. All of these are retrieving. But if you've got a dog that's maybe at the master hunter level in the AKC field test, uh, running in the open class and UKC field trials, or uh, like a NAVDA utility level, something like that, then you may want to uh, aim for the uh, the the trialers class, which will essentially be again, a broke dog stake. If you're, uh, not planning to run in that, then you'll be in the hunter's class, which is a just good, clean hunting dog work we're not looking for any, uh, real steadiness requirements outside of just being able to get around your dog. If it's a pointing dog, um, and if it's a flushing dog, basically no steadiness requirements, but we do want to see a dog that is under control. So hopefully all that made sense. Run over there and get those dogs registered, and we hope to see you guys here. It should be a, a very good time. should be a heck of a shindig, if you will. Um, I am back from vacation. Last week, we took a family vacation to the beach. That was nice uh, and relaxing. Took Ella and Althea, the house dogs, and they got to play a lot. And we'd go out to the beach every morning and swim and um, went with our family friends and their kids and had a, had a big time watching the kids play. So coming back invigorated, ready to get back to work. Um, Wayne, who will be traveling with me next month to Ohio, uh, to, uh, to test in the NAVDA invitational. Uh, he went home for the week last week and, uh, it was fun. Got a lot of pictures of him just laying around on the couch and on the floor. He's such a cool dog in that way. He's, uh, more than probably any other big pointing dog. I know, um, 
got a just a killer off switch, just a pleasure to be around. So I'm glad he got that opportunity to go home and be with his family. Um, we did have a litter of lab pups that are all accounted for now. Uh, and, and at some point I want to talk about my breeding of labs. Um, but it's just a lot of fun. So we've had pups around, we've got a few we're developing for detection prospects or hunting homes. So if you're in the market for, uh, for a started dog in the, uh, within the next year, give me a shout. If you're looking for a started, like, uh, companion gun dog retriever. So I'm going to be building a few of those moving forward also for, for, um, uh, detection dogs, uh, uh, for police military applications. So if you're out there and you're looking for those type of pups, let me know as well. And, uh, we'll see if you can't, we can't line you up with something. Um, I will have a started female French Brittany available, um, somewhere between, I would say, the end of October through Christmas, she should be kind of finishing up. So she'll be a, a very nicely started dog. She, had a, she has a uh, kind of an abbreviated hunting season under her belt as a puppy last year. Um, I started her here as a prospect for me, and she just turned out a little small uh, for me to keep as brood stock. Um, and that's just something that for, for the lines I like have kind of been trending in that, in that smaller direction. I still love the dogs and she's no exception. She's a great retriever, uh, swimmer, um, good hard hunting pointing dog, but she's just a little on the tiny side and we got to kind of move away from that. So, um, if you have any interest in that, give me a shout as well. She's going to be a nice one. So uh, we'll, uh, I'll kind of keep the pictures and videos going to, to social of her, but that's, again, that's Stevie. She's out of Crockett. Who's one of mine. Um, and, uh, and a little bitch named Sam who's owned by my friend Eddie, who's also out of my stock. So I know the lines really well. And again, I like her a lot. You know, there's nothing, nothing at all wrong with her, except she does come in under standard in terms of height. Uh, and she's, uh, yeah, she's not micro, but she's, she's definitely small and which, you know, some people may, may really like. And so, um, again, reach out if interested in her. Uh, I have had, uh, a stud request for Pete. So he'll be bred, um, here in the next week or two, uh, to what looks to be a nice little bitch out of, uh, um, Maggie to 10 bar, 10 bar ranch, who I'm very familiar with. And, uh, and lines, who's my friend, um, uh, Doug out of Illinois. So his male, and Maggie had, uh, had a litter and the, and now the, uh, one of those bitches has matured and she's going to be bred to Pete. So I like the lines. They should line up well. Orange and, uh, white dogs, um, should be some little go getters in the mix. So again, if you're interested in that, reach out, I'll put you in touch with that breeder. Um, and, uh, and kind of last on the updates, I've been, uh, having some, hosting some group classes here at the farm on Wednesday mornings and occasional Saturdays. And so it looks like that's going to be something we keep moving forward. I really like that. I've, I've always having come up in the protection sport and the club scene, I've always kind of, um, wanted for that in a way that I haven't been able to, uh, to get back to since those early days in, in protection sport. And so I'm kind of trying to develop a little bit of a, uh, again, group class club environment, um, here, 
uh, that allows me to get back to that feeling. I, I think there's a lot of great training to happen. I've trained at various clubs um, with with pointing dogs and and versatile dogs in the past, and and I enjoy those days a lot. Um, this will be a little more intimate. We'll probably cap it at eight to ten, and make sure that everybody is kind of uh, kind of has a hand in each other's. Um, you know, dog training in terms of learning and helping and those things and just kind of get a, get a little bit of that team spirit going on. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me. Uh, again, that's probably going to be every Wednesday. Uh, I'll try to give updates to the regulars and, and leave things on social and then whatever Saturdays we can make it work. And I'll have to look at those on a month by month basis and figure out when we can uh, when we can squeeze them in the trial and testing schedule gets a little busy and of course family obligations. So, but I, I do expect to have, you know, at least one or two Saturdays a month where we can make those work for you. So if, uh, again, if interested, reach out. So today's podcast again is, uh, is on dogs that have left their mark on me. And, uh, this was a request, um, and I've had it something similar request by, uh, by a couple of listeners. Um, uh, but I guess this will essentially kind of be an autobiography, uh, as told through the dogs in my life, uh, essentially. And I'm just going to run them, run down the list chronologically. And, uh, I've got the notes out here, but I'm sure the stories will just pop in my head as I go. But, um, you know, dogs are something that have been a lifelong interest for me, but I did not necessarily have the access to them. I wanted as a child, uh, but I, I kind of some of my earliest memories do revolve around dogs. And the first one I had personally was a black lab named Gerda. Uh, and so, you know, my father being an academic, um, he, uh, he always had interesting names for dogs. He had had a cocker growing up named Hessa as, uh, that's one of his favorite authors. And then, um, you know, he had studied about Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in, uh, somewhere in his, in his, you know, academic life and decided he liked that as a dog name. So that was my first. And I remember I was four years old. I think I got him for my fourth birthday, which is kind of cool because my little boy is coming up on his, uh, his fourth birthday here this coming Wednesday. And of course he's got all the access in the world to puppies and dogs and he seems to enjoy them where, you know, we'll kind of let whatever, uh, love for dogs develop and, and just stay out of the way. And, um, you know, I don't know how I feel about him, you know, pursuing a life with dogs the way I have, but if it's something that's, uh, that he's deeply passionate about, I won't get in his way, but I certainly won't force it on him either. Other than maybe a little bit of, um, manual labor here and there, which I think is the right of all parents, uh, uh, as, as, as their children mature. Um, so yeah, so I do remember getting Gerda. I remember my grandfather presenting him to me. I think we went to pick him out as a puppy. I can barely remember, but, uh, but I do remember, you know, and I still have a picture of me wearing my little birthday hat and my grandpa having me up on the hood of his car with my little puppy. And he was my first. Um, and, uh, we lived in Beaufort, South Carolina at the time. Um, my dad was in the Navy and I can remember him training the dog, you know, and he, he's a psychologist and he has a, a, a deep, kind of, uh, background in behaviorism from a, from an academic perspective. Um, 
but he was using, I remember it was always a, a pack of craft single American cheese. He'd break off little squares and put them in balls. And that was the treat he used to train Gerda. And I can remember him teaching him to jump in and out of the back of our family station wagon. Um, and I was enamored by it. And I spent a lot of time with that dog and, you know, uh, and we had a little dog house out in the yard and he hung out and, um, you know, unfortunately as, as many things happen in life, my folks split a couple of years later and, uh, and Gerda went with us. My mother and I moved down to, uh, to Georgia. And, um, as we kind of, were kind of figuring out where we were moving, you know, from place to place, moved a little bit from Georgia to Alabama. Uh, she decided it was best to give Gerda to a family friend. Um, and, and so I can remember, being absolutely devastated by that when I kind of realized, okay, we're, we're going to leave this dog here. And I think that moment, um, probably has a hand in, uh, in, in the kind of odd sort of interest I took in dogs later in life, because, you know, I'd had this dog that I, that I enjoyed being around, you know, I, we, I probably a little more, um, you know, a little less intense relationship than I've had with dogs as an adult, simply because I was a kid and he was a, a big dog. He was sweet and he played with me, um, you know, but it, it, there was a, a still a bit of novelty to just the opportunity to go hang out with him, you know. So there was a lot of play, had a good relationship with the dog, loved him very much, uh, had to had to give him up. He went and he went and lived on a farm and had a wonderful life from there. Uh, but that kind of sense of loss of that dog kind of always stuck with me. Um, and we moved to Alabama uh, from there, and there was a little feral white dog um, that would come hang out in our yard, and I kind of adopted that dog. Uh, and we called him Spud. And so at the time there was an advertising campaign with, with Bud Light and this dog Spuds McKinney, the original party animal for all you old folks out there that remember that like me and Spud kind of looked like him, not really, but you know, enough for me as a kid to, to think that was cool as a name. So, um, but Spud never was truly, you know, as, as much as I remember him being my pet, and we did give him a dog house in the backyard again, as you know, we're living in, in kind of that the up and coming, uh, South in the eighties where there, you know, it, the culture just wasn't what it is today. There weren't as many dogs in the house. Uh, and I don't even think we had a chain on spud. Um, we just had a dog house and that's where he stayed cause we fed him. Um, but I, you know, he just wandered all over the place. And unfortunately one day he wandered into the wrong person's yard and dug in their flower bed, uh, and they shot him. And, uh, it was with a 22 and, uh, and we did end up taking him to the vet and the vet saved Spud and, and we, we kind of, you know, figured it was probably better off to move him out to this cabin property we, uh, had at the time, or we had access to at the time. And we ended up moving from there and, and leaving Spud behind as well. So that was another one. It wasn't quite as devastating. I was six or seven years old. Um, but having just kind of, uh, been through that one time, I, I had learned to expect those kind of things in my life, but we moved kind of back home to, to Bisco, North Carolina. Um, and, and for a while we stayed with my aunt and uncle and my uncle owned a, uh, tobacco farm 
uh, and was a avid bird hunter. And, and it was just in the time, this would have been the late eighties where he was transitioning, uh, the tobacco farm into a hunting preserve. And so there were dogs everywhere, bird dogs of all shapes and sizes. And, uh, and I, I just was absolutely, um, enamored with those dogs. And I spent a lot of time around his kennels and just watching and what little time I could, you know, not be in the way. Uh, and he was nice enough to kind of let me be around as he was training, training bird dogs and hunting and, and just watching how all that took place. And, um, I was a little young, uh, to, to go actual hunting, um, I'd been seven, eight, nine years old, um, but I got to tag along enough and uh, and really developed a love for that that would uh, obviously, um, you know, continue for the rest of my life. And so uh, about the time I was 10 years old, I, I moved to Greensburg, North Carolina uh, and and moved with my father and and, he, you know, he and my stepmother are both professionals and decided uh, as much as I asked and begged for a dog that it was not a good idea. So from actually from the age of 10 until I uh, until I was 19, till after I got graduated high school and moved out, I didn't have any dogs. And um, uh, and I and I think that period of time as well uh, kind of led to me being a little deeper obsession with them because I would always take an interest if I saw one. I never stopped wanting one. Um, and I was still visiting my uncle on occasion. And, and as I matured into my teenage years, I'd get to go down there and hunt a little bit. Uh, and then my grandfather would always have in his later years, um, uh, whatever feral dog had kind of shacked up around his place. So there were a couple of those through that time period as well. Um, that, uh, you know, that I had access to dogs. And so, but at the end of the day, I didn't have my own. And, uh, and I had always wanted one, but at the age of 18, I joined the military and, uh, and, and, and dogs weren't really on my radar at that point in time. I just expected I wasn't going to have one. Um, and I wasn't thinking about it, but I was very busy with my military career. There were things I wanted to accomplish and I was very focused on that. And I happened to be working at the second Marine division scout sniper school as a medic. So I was a Navy corpsman in my job at the sniper school uh, it was just simply to be there in case somebody got hurt and to kind of be that, that first, uh, you know, first responder on scene, if anything bad happened and that's kind of normal. So you would have a, a corpsman on scene anytime you had a live range or people were doing anything dangerous. And so that was just my job. I, I wasn't a cool guy by any stretch of imagination. I was just kind of this, uh, what you call a boot, um, young guy with very little experience whose job was just to kind of do whatever I was told and, uh, and hopefully had enough skill to stabilize somebody if they got really badly injured to, you know, in order for somebody that really knew what they were doing to show up and, and take care of things. While I was there and I had been there for a few class cycles and everybody was comfortable with me, um, the school was given an extra week of instruction. So I think, and I, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I think they, it had been a nine week course and, they were granted a 10th week, um, uh, to, to extend that course. So the, the students and instructors had more time to get whatever information that needed passed, passed. But what ended up happening is that that week was granted in the middle of a, uh, of a course cycle and they they didn't have any 
instruction for that final week. So these kids, you know, they're kids, these, these young men that were going through sniper school were all set to graduate in a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, you got another week to <laughs> add it onto the course, but they hadn't really div- put the doctrine together in such a way that they could extend it through that, through that period of time. And, uh, and the staff in COIC, which is non-commissioned officer in charge, uh, kind of looked at me and was like, Hey doc, why don't you do some calling around and just see if we can get some subject matter experts and vary whatever fields to kind of come talk, you know, address the class for this last week. And we'll just take a few days and, um, you know, see if there's anybody that can come talk on any specific subject to fill time. And one of the folks I called happened to be the MPs, uh, in the canine unit. So this was in the days before, uh, the multi-purpose canine program and where you see a lot of dogs with the special operators, especially these days. And pretty much the only guys that had dogs in the military at that time were the military police. Uh, and so I called them and they were going to come out and give a talk, bring their dogs and do a demonstration. Uh, and they did. And, um, and they asked for a volunteer to put on, uh, a sleeve, uh, and be bitten by one of the patrol dogs. And, uh, and I thought that sounded cool. So I did that. And it was one of the most exhilarating things I had ever done, done in my life. It was, you know, it it was a very pivotal moment in my life. And about a week later, um, I went out and I found a Malinois breeder in Sanford, North Carolina, and I purchased a Belgian Malinois puppy. And it was the first time I had ever even heard uh, the term Belgian Malinois was on that day those MPs came out. Um, I just assume every police dog ever was a German Shepherd. Uh, and these guys had these dogs that I assumed were German Shepherds, just different colors. Uh, there was one that was actually black, the one that I took the bite from. And I asked the guy what kind of dog he was. And he said, he's a Malinois. Um, and, but in Holland, they just kind of mix them all together, call them a Malinois. And I guess, you know, you could consider that even today, probably consider that a Malinois X. Um, but it was a black dog. Uh, they called him out. And so I knew that's what I wanted. Found the breeder, uh, a guy named Jerry Bradshaw who you probably have heard me reference several times on this podcast, uh, had a litter on the ground and I went and picked out, um, my little eight week old Mal puppy, uh, and, and named her Lacey and Lacey ended up being kind of that dog. I was 19, 19 years old at the time. Um, and through my military career, you know, she would, when I would travel, she would go live with my parents with their lab and his kennel. Uh, and then I would come home and then we'd go to Schutzen, um, club that was the Jacksonville Schutzen club and, uh, and learn a lot there. And so I got to the opportunity to start doing helper work while I was at the club and learning how to train Lacey and, uh, and just advancing my skills as a very novice dog trainer. Um, but I was luckily, luckily surrounded by some pretty high level trainers there, Walt and Patty Baysden of Baysden House Kennels. Um, who uh, bred and raised very nice German shepherds for a long time. They were at that club, a lady named Tanya Purcell uh, with a dog named Bridger. I remember that was a, that was a pretty important dog to me, especially from a helper perspective, very beautiful expression of aggression in this dog. Um, He was a little bit sharp, um, but his, you know, he gave a beautiful defensive picture, which, people tend to like in that sport. It's, it's something that, um, is, is kind of nuanced to discuss and maybe a little more than, 
is necessary for this particular podcast. Uh, but you know, there's something about standing in front of one of those dogs as the guy that's teaching them to, to bite and do it correctly. And while I'm learning that, uh, that left a big impression on me. So, so that was a good one. A gentleman named Martin Gnip, uh, who's been a long time player in the, in the Schutzen scene and was a very talented helper, um, at the club level and as a, uh, as a trial helper at the time, he, taught me a lot about how to train dogs from that end, uh, of the dog. Um, uh, Clarence, Jim Bouget of Vom Cedar house, Rottweilers had some great dogs there. So that was where I really became a dog trainer and where it really, uh, be, be, you know, just developed a, a deep, deep passion for dogs. I had this little Malinois and she, matured and she stayed relatively small. She was about a 45, 50 pound dog. Um, very, what we would call sporty. So pretty stable temperament. Uh, she could get a little dog aggressive at times, but for the most part, very stable, very affectionate, always wanted to be with me, had a wonderful relationship with Lacey and, um, and, uh, but she was a great training dog. She tra- had a, had beautiful food drive, very snappy, everything. She was, she was actually bred in Holland by a gentleman named Appy Camps, who's a very famous can PV player and dog trainer from Holland. And, uh, and the Camps family has, uh, has a, a, a very big reputation over there for producing very nice dogs and, uh, and for training at the highest levels. And so it was really cool. And I, I didn't know any of that at the time. Um, uh, you know, but I, I, the more I got into it, the more I kind of found out about her lineage and the cooler it became to me. But, you know, from a training perspective, she was everything I could have asked for. I learned how to get whatever I wanted. She wasn't the easiest dog for everything. She wasn't hard by any stretch in the imagination, but she trained and she trained well. She loved to do the bite work, but never, um, never channeled into aggression in such a way that was problematic. She didn't stress or anything like that. So she was, she was just a good starter dog for me. Um, and ended up being kind of a dog that, uh, that represents an era of my life. Um, and so that was my twenties, you know, so she passed away when I was 30 years old. Um, and in that time she, you know, I was in the military, we were playing sport, we got into the sport of PSA, which is Protection Sport Association, and that's Jerry Bradshaw's. We actually took second place at the Eastern Regionals um, in 2005. Uh, that was a couple of years after I got out of the service. And um, and from there, she went to college with me. And more than anything, she just hung out and went to parties with me. And like, you know, as I would try to use her to, to, uh, get girls attention in the quad and stuff like that. And, and she got loads of attention. I got much less, uh, than she did, but she was just a cool dog and she was easy to be around. She was not, uh, you know, her little touch of dog aggression was easily manageable as long as, uh, nobody came and jumped on her back or anything like that. So I always had to be a little aware of it, but for the most part, I could take her anywhere I wanted to. And with people, she was just super affectionate and melted into them. And, um, and after college, she came, I moved in with my college roommate back at, in my hometown for a little while. And, uh, and she lived with us there around that time, actually in college. And I need to mention this and I'll come back to this dog. I did end up getting a setter from my uncle, 
that moved into the apartment with us in Boone. So I went to Appalachian State University and, uh, and I lived with Lacey in this setter. And for a very short time, another, uh, another Malinois, which was problematic. <laughs> and he was not just dog aggressive. He had a little human aggression. Um, and, and that just ended up being quite, a, uh, that was a lot in college. So we found that guy a home and, and that's a, a story in and of itself, but he ended up living his, a, a wonderful life with a police officer, uh, that lived way out in the middle of the country and, uh, and, and everything was, uh, was hunky dory with that. Um, I spent a lot of time hunting and fishing. And when I went hunting, Clyde went with me. And when I went fishing, Lacey went with me and she'd sit on the bank and watch me fish up a little Creek somewhere. Uh, and, and, uh, and those were wonderful times in my life. And she was just a, you know, my constant companion. Uh, we continued to dabble in protection sport. I, I did, directly after college come home and uh and work for a police dog vendor in winston-salem and he also had a uh um a leather shop where he made dog training equipment and so i would you know work a little hourly in the in the leather shop just cutting straps and stuff and and lacy would hang out in the office with me i can remember really cold days and she'd be curled up by the little space heater we had and um and i'd be cutting on leather and and uh, that trainer's name was Buddy Lawson, who I've mentioned in the podcast before, and he was a dear friend and still is, and and uh, a mentor to me. Um, and he had a you know played a major role in in Lacey's development at that time. Uh, we, I, 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 after college, I worked for a bit selling medical equipment. I was not extremely fulfilled by that, and so I moved out to St. Louis. I thought I'd try something else, and I. I tried chiropractic school for a little bit. Um, and this is getting into 2009 timeframe. So 2008, I'm selling medical equipment, not really enjoying it, thinking of what I want to do, go to chiropractic school, move to St. Louis, find a few people that are involved, you know, interested in maybe doing a little club work. So we had a little Mondio ring PSA kind of informal club out there was having a lot of fun. I ended up, uh, taking some side work training for a guy named Casey Ray at a, at a business called dog smarts, um, in the St. Louis area. And, uh, and kind of started developing myself a little bit as a pet trainer. And as I was doing that, I was finding out, man, I really enjoy this dog training and I was not enjoying chiropractic, chiropractic school at all. Uh, it just, you know, the, I wasn't doing poorly. I had to pick up another degree while I was there to get kind of enroll, um, training my dog, living in a little one bedroom apartment in a place that I had never, never lived before and going to classes that I just wasn't enjoying. Um, and, and kind of learned very quickly that I had very little interest in actually being a chiropractor. And, uh, and one day I, uh, it, it was actually 4th of July. There were people lighting off fireworks and Lacey was, stressing and she had never stressed before, um, with gunshots, fireworks, anything like that. And she, and she had had a little bit of a persistent cough and I took her in, uh, to the vet and they gave her a once over, didn't think there was too much of a problem. Um, made sure she was heartworm negative and no congestive heart failure stuff. And just thought, Hey, maybe aging a little bit, dog virus, whatever. Let's give her a couple of weeks. Well, that night she really stressed. The cough got really uh, exacerbated by the stress and she coughed a little blood. So the first thing in the morning, I took her back to the vet and they said, let's, uh, let's get an x-ray. And, um, 
And they did. And the vet came out and said, I've never seen a dog so eaten up by cancer uh, that's not showing any physical symptoms other than a small cough. She came in, she just happily walked in the office. Um, but I could see things, you know, I, I knew she was going downhill and he goes, man, you're, you're, it, you know, based on the x-ray and based on what we're looking at, you can have a catastrophic kind of, you know, traumatic death here pretty soon. And definitely she's going to go downhill very quickly. And so I made the decision pretty much then to put her down. I did not want it there to be any suffering and, and she was in a, in a very, very bad way that she really never truly led on to in terms of her attitude. And so I remember the day I put her down very vividly. Um, and I, I went back to class after that and I walked into a, I remember it was a, a history of chiropractic class. Um, and there was a little philosophy and history and they said some things that, that I had already been struggling with philosophically uh, and I just picked up my books. I walked to the registrar's office. Uh, I disenrolled. I rented a U-Haul. I went back to the crematorium. I picked up Lacey's ashes and I drove home. And uh, and I went and I spread her ashes at a uh, at the at a city lake where she and I used to spend a lot of time jogging when I was living back home. But that was, um, you know, that was she was such an important dog to me. And, and, and this story is probably boring as hell. Cause we've all had those dogs that we love very much, but, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that without Lacey, um, there would have been no dog training career for me. And, and so I'm grateful to Jerry Bradshaw. I'm grateful to all the people that played a role in her, her life. And I, and most of all, I'm grateful to that dog. Um, you know, and, and I think, you always hear that dog of a lifetime phrase from people. And I guess if I had to say I had one dog of a lifetime, um, then I guess it would have been Lacey, but there was nothing extremely special about her in terms of her ability to train. She was, you know, with a better trainer, she probably could have accomplished a lot more in a sport career. Um, but, but she was my buddy, you know, we traipsed around the world as me as a single guy for the most part, uh, living off, you know, pizza and hot dogs. And she pretty much ate what I ate and, you know, and, and lived where I lived and, and went where I went. And, uh, she was a wonderful companion and I have many, many great memories. So, uh, I did pretty much directly after her passing decide to buy another Malinois. Um, and, and it just didn't quite, uh, it didn't quite, fill her role as well. It was a, a well-bred little bitch by the name. I named her Jolene. She was, she ended up, she didn't have temperament issues, but she was certainly wild. She was on the very high end of the drive spectrum, uh, did not have any off switch, was not an easy dog to live with. Uh, so after a year, I, I decided I would um, sell her to a police dog vendor. I sold her to a group out of DC and she went back and the last word I got on her was that she ended up, uh, dying of a heat stroke on a 75 degree day in her kennel. Um, just going crazy in her kennel. And, um, I think that speaks in a little broader, broader sense about maybe what in that time between the late nineties and the 2010s, um, 
what began to happen with the Malinois in terms of temperament. They just kept breeding up and up. And and it's not to say you can't find a good one. Um, but even today, I think that, you know, we, stability is, is harder to come by in the Mal than it was in those earlier days. Um, and so I did have one more Mal after that. I named him Bill Brasky. And he, again, he didn't fill that hole. One thing I realized when I had Lacey and I had been in a protection sport, I was training police dogs at various places. Um, I was really deeply into protection sport, but I can remember having the realization one day that I would more likely give my life protecting Lacey than I would ever ask her to give her life protecting me. Um, if that makes sense. And the moment I had that thought, uh, the, the whole protection sport thing kind of began to fizzle for me. And, and I just had, it did not have the enthusiasm I had had before it looking back on it. I mean, I, I think, you know, some of that had to do with my immaturity and, and bravado and things that I thought protection sports were about. And today I have much more respect for them as a, as kind of a training outlet, I think, um, than I ever did, but that was something I learned along the way. So I, I came home, I, I scattered her ashes. I, I lived a little while, bounced around trying to figure out what to do with myself. And, uh, and I ended up taking a job uh, training balm dogs at a place called K2 Solutions out of Southern Pines, North Carolina. And that was a really, that was the best move I could have ever made. Um, and so, you know, those, those years, my early thirties, it was, uh, 2011 when I went there. Um, and about that same time I bought my very first French Brittany. I had, a couple of those Malinois, I decided I wanted a hunting dog. And of course I had Clyde in the interim and I probably should, should revisit Clyde. Uh, Clyde was a setter that, uh, that I got from my uncle. And when I was in college, um, he, he was really the catalyst for me falling in love with bird hunting. Uh, there is a very, 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 very small population of ruffed grouse in the mountains of North Carolina. And, uh, and Clyde found a few of them while, while we were in college, but we spent many, many hours walking many, many logging roads for very few bird contacts. And Clyde actually was a really nice bird dog. His one issue uh, was that he was a runoff dog. And he was a very typical uh, field bred English setter um, from American field lines. He was probably about 45 pounds, not a, not an extremely tall dog, but he's very lean, kind of light bone, extremely fast and athletic and, uh, all gas, no brakes, this dog. And he was happy to just run off. And this was in like, this was, I think pre GPS when I first got him. Um, and while I had him, like the various, very first version of an Astro came out, uh, and it's a good thing it did because we recovered him a couple of times with that thing where we probably wouldn't have gotten him otherwise. Um, but when I did move off to St. Louis, uh, he went to live with my, a, a good friend of mine that was a bird hunting buddy. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, got into some, something with heavy metals and, and, uh, and, and passed away. So we lost Clyde there, but by the time he was just really kind of coming into his own as a bird dog at about five, six years of age, um, he, you know, you could kind of trust him to drop him a little more, uh, and not find him three miles down the road, chewing on roadkill or something on the side of the road. Um, you know, but that was, he was, he was a good one. I learned a lot. I fell in love with being in the woods and chasing a dog and, and, uh, and he was a sweetheart of a dog too. Just, just, uh, just an absolute renegade on the ground. Um, so 
so there's that, you know, that kind of interim. And, and I would say too, before we get into K2, there were a few dogs kind of through the, uh, the early 2000s, you know, 2000 to say 2010, um, that left an impression on me. One in particular was, was Buddy Lawson's dog Vox. Uh, as a decoy, he was just, he was a hammer. He was about a 55 pound dog. And I can remember on long sends, just almost never being able to keep my feet when I was in a bite suit. And he, the kind of the game was, let's try to esquive Vox, which is a, uh, a move where you, uh, you, you attempt to make the dog miss you at the end of a very long bite. So I'd be in a, a full body bite suit down at the end of the field. Um, and this is kind of a French ring thing. I had no idea what I was doing in terms of like eschieving. There's certainly method to this when the, the top level French ring dog guys do it, but I could usually make dogs miss. Um, but with Vox, he was always like a center line dog. He was always kind of focused on your chest and abdomen. Um, and I can just remember trying to, to, to get out of his way at the last second. And he'd always find a way to get a couple of teeth on the suit. And when he did, you were going to feel all of the, uh, the kinetic energy that went into his send as he would swing around you. And, and oftentimes I lost my footing, but it was just a very intense dog, a lot of fun, um, did wonderful things for buddy and, and was a great dog for him in those years. Uh, there was a dog named Ricardo that Jerry Bradshaw owned. He was the first dog. He was a big giant Dutch Mal. Um, and these crushing grips. And he was the first dog I ever got on a bite. And just like, I can remember thinking like, please God, get this dog off of this suit. Um, it was just, he was just so powerful and intense. And that was, he was a great dog for Jerry. Uh, and then one more Mal I remember that really stuck with me was a dog named Jack that was owned by Sean Siggins, uh, in PSA, he was a leg, he was the first leg dog I ever took a bite from and he was super intense. And I thought my shin was going to, uh, just break in half when that dog was on the bite. And so I can remember those there are others Ronan, Mike McMahon's dog was always a fun dog to, to do bite where he was so clean, but he was also so powerful. And, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, you look back on those and there's, there's so many of them and you just can't, I can't remember them all uh, individually, but I, but I learned so much at that time, especially being a decoy. Um, and I enjoyed it very, very much. Um, and then as I got to K2, uh, I kind of got an opportunity to, to train with a bunch of retriever trainers and, uh, the, the program we were working on was the Marine IDD program that stands for improvised explosive device detection dog. Uh, and what we did essentially was took, um, dogs that were, uh, kind of wash out, maybe not wash out. Cause at the time the we were, we, there was a heavy demand for these dogs, but we were looking for labs or retrievers of some sort, um, that were handling duck dogs or handling hunt test or field trial dogs. Uh, and we would take those, we would, um, imprint them on explosive odors, teach them an indication, and we would handle them as if they were duck dogs, uh, and search areas, you know, culverts or open areas to look for bombs. And then we would train Marines to handle those dogs. And then, uh, and then I would, as a field service representative, travel with the Marines overseas and, uh, and maintain those dogs and the, and the training of those Marines. And that was a wonderful thing, but I got to work with these super high level retriever trainers and really, 
fell back in love with labs. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, one that always sticks out in my memory, one of the, it wasn't the first truck of dogs I had, but the second truck of dogs I was on at K2, we had this giant chocolate named Jet and he had this super undershot jaw and he was the just goofy looking, um, dog, but he was a, uh, he was an absolute fire breather. He, he loved to run blinds. He loved to find bombs. He was enthusiastic about everything he did. And he was just, the, had this goofy affectionate nature. He loved to be with you. And I really enjoyed training that dog and he did a great job on our deployment and, and, uh, and his handler did a wonderful job with him. And, and he's one that I think of, if I think of all the dogs I trained at K2, um, he really sticks out in my mind. Uh, there was a sweet little female Tori P410 who probably, probably was a little too sensitive and soft to, to be an IDD, but she, she did pretty well in her handler. They were kind of an underdog story and that was a lot of fun. Um, and so on that IDD program, there were several there. We, we actually bred a litter at K2, uh, that was the C litter. And one of those in particular, I got to travel with train and, and, uh, and train up the handler. And that was a dog named Colt. And he and his handler were a phenomenal team. And one day I'd love to, um, reconnect with him and get him on the podcast. Cause he has interesting stories. They didn't have maybe the most, uh, eventful deployment. They had a few, they did a lot of missions. I don't know that they had a ton of fines at that point. They were doing kind of different types of work. Um, but they were, they were just a great team to work with. And so that was a good kind of three year stint for me of just training those bomb dogs, like 2011 to 2013, 14 ish. Um, around that time we saw kind of the writing on the wall. My last deployment to Afghanistan, um, ended in 2014 and, uh, we pretty much turned out the lights at Camp Leatherneck, uh, with that deployment. We left and, and, um, and the war really wound down from there. And I stayed on with K2 for another, between a year and two years. And I worked, uh, I worked on the MPC program for a while. Um, and we, we trained quite a few dogs for, um, for various special operations forces units around the world. Uh, got to work with a lot of really cool guys and high level dogs. Um, but the model we worked on, we were still kind of working on the lab model with like a truck with like two or three guys and a truck with like 20 dogs on it. And, and we had a one by trip in particular that, uh, we got a, a bunch of dogs I wasn't really happy with. They were kind of, you know, just a specific type of dog. And I, I won't go too deep into that, that I didn't like, but I got just super burnout with it. Um, and, uh, and I never really recovered from that. And I was still training PSA. I was doing some decoy work and really enjoying that. And, and had had some fun on the MPC side, had a couple of nice dogs, had one, um, German shepherd named bricks who I loved. And certainly that dog, uh, left an impression on me clean and powerful. And we had a nice smooth sporty duchy that I really enjoyed. But for the most part, the dogs were kind of handler sharp, um, a little bit sloppy, a little nervy. And, uh, and that just kind of, it just burnt me out. And I know everything kind of smoothed out from there, but that was in the earliest days of that, kind of trying that model and learning that there were better ways. Um, and so, uh, I went from the MPC side at the very end of my time at K2 and I, um, 
I worked with service dogs. And so there was a pilot program going on with the VA at the time for these emotional support dogs and then some actual mobility service dogs. And, uh, and I got to work not quite a full year on that. And that was, but that was important for me. Um, I learned a lot. I, you know, I got back to my, I'd always been what I consider like a motivational trainer had trained with food from the very beginning, but was training, more and more technical skills with these service dogs and reward-based systems and really got to enjoy that. One particular dog that stands out in my mind was a big yellow bitch named Jewel, a yellow lab bitch, and and she was a training machine. She probably didn't quite have the perfect temperament for service dog work. She was stable as she could be. She was just like goofy and interactive and always, you know, just a little, I wouldn't say hyperactive is the correct word, but maybe piddlesome, uh, if you will. She just, uh, didn't, wasn't super content laying around and being lazy when nothing was going on. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then one more thing I did, I had the opportunity to instruct a civilian one time, I took him through a, through a basic course. We had, you know, we offered, um, instruction for civilians there that were just interested in dog training. This young lady named, uh, Allison, brought her Doberman down and I just happened to be between classes and deployments at the time. And they asked me to kind of act as her, um, her lead instructor, which means I just kind of spent the days with her and she was uh, mid twenties with this Doberman, very talented trainer. The dog was not super talented, but she was making up for it. And it was a lot of fun. I feel like I got to, that was my kind of where I first really, you know, outside of the military structure and outside of um, the the uh, rigid um, kind of step by step, you're going through this class. You're going to teach this specific class and get this specific PowerPoint, and then you're going to go on down the line and kind of train in that um, more military militaristic style. Uh, from a, an instructor's perspective, this one was much more free flowing and we kind of just picked and chose whatever she wanted to do. And I love that. And, and that's really informed, um, kind of how I go about training my clients these days, uh, as, as from a coaching perspective, um, Allison went on, she had, she had had a doggy daycare facility, I think in Georgia, kind of a young entrepreneur. She was an interesting story, very bright young lady. She went on to, uh, to open a business, moved to New Hampshire, got married, had a little girl. Her business was booming, very successful. And they had a nice place. And, uh, a couple of years ago, she was working on her barn, um, on top and fell, fell to her death. And, uh, and I just, that, you know, that just left a, uh, you know, it was very sad, but it's important for me to remember her story and to, and to maybe share that with folks. But she, she was, um, uh, a courageous young lady. She got in the suit, did wonderful work in the suit, worked protection dogs for quite a while. And, uh, and you know, uh, important to remember her, but it played a role in my development as a, uh, a coach as well. Um, I need to talk. So we'll talk, basically go through some of the dogs that have been important to me from those times. I mean, I'm just basically giving you the story of my life there. While I was at K2, when I first got to K2, I picked up my first French Brittany Telly. Um, 
and I liked him and, and I was hunting him and having a good time. I, I found out about woodcock hunting with Telly down in that area. I had been into woodcock before with Clyde, but I really found out about woodcock being a viable huntable, you know, bird in the lower areas of North Carolina and found a lot of birds with him. One problem I had with Telly is he just had like zero stamina. And so I could get like 10 or 15 minutes out of him. And then he'd be kind of like, just fall back into heel with me and just sit down wherever I was. So as long as we were going to get into birds really quick and get out get our limit and get out, like we were good to go. Um, if we had to put in too much time, Telly was just going to kind of fizzle. Uh, my buddy who had had Clyde, um, came to visit with his daughter. She fell in love with Telly and, and Telly went to live with them and actually got to hunt quite a bit with Matt. And so that was, that was nice. But after Telly, I, I, I I knew I really liked the French Britneys. I just needed to find the right one for me. And so when I was in Afghanistan, the first time I, uh, I, I did a lot of in my downtime, which didn't have a ton of access to the internet, but I, when I did, I was figuring out where I was going to get my next French Brittany from. And, uh, I found a breeder in Montana, um, Topperlin Kennel, uh, Linda Kears, who ended, turned into a good friend and a mentor to me as well. Um, and I went after that deployment, my father and I, uh, took a road trip from North Carolina to, to Montana. It was a wonderful trip. And, uh, we went and picked up Ella and she has definitely been and she's sitting up here now, uh, you know, on the, on, on her bed behind me and, uh, and gosh, so now that she's 11, 10 or 11 years old. So I think that was, um, September, 2012. So coming up on, she'll be 11 in, uh, in September. And so, um, she's been a fantastic bird dog for me. She tore, uh, t- tore an ACL a couple of years ago. And that kind of, for all intents and purposes, ended her career as like one of the main dogs on my string. But for many years, she was a super high producer. And in the interim, um, uh, you know, I've had several good dogs, but, but she's, she's been the dog of my thirties for sure. So if Lacey was the dog of my twenties, uh, then Ella has been the dog of my thirties and, um, you know, and now in, into my forties, uh, but, but just everything I could have wanted, not the most pointy dog, not the most enthusiastic retriever, but very similar to Ella, like just good, solid all around dog. And, and I've spent so many years like looking for that perfect dog. And when I realize all my favorite dogs, none of them have been that perfect dog. They've, they've never been the best at everything, but usually they're pretty solid all around. And, and but they end up being the most productive because of the time I put into them. Um, and she's no exception there. She, we had three litters with Ella, um, and she had a a nice trialing career. Uh, but most importantly, it was just my good, good hunting dog. And, uh, right now, as a matter of fact, I believe one of the dogs from her first litter, who's now seven years old, uh, has earned his grand champion of the field title in the UKC. And he will, I think he ended up actually kind of earning grand champion of the field times two. So he had all these, like, you know, you have to have to put together a combination of wins and various, uh, classes in the UKC in order to, to, you know, earn certain titles. And, uh, and this dog's name was mud. And so we had just moved, um, up here. I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for a little while. I went to work for a, uh, 
a service dog facility out of there and, um, and moved up here. And right around that time we had that litter, uh, I kept mud and I started them on this farm and w- my wife and I were, were just looking at getting married around that time. Um, and, uh, and we were moving home and we were thinking of starting a family and I had a guy call me that wanted a, uh, a started dog. And I was telling this guy, I got this one dog. He's very special. He's going to be a fantastic dog. Um, but I've left him wild. And as we've talked, I, I had the same mentality then that I knew now where I'm going to make a monster. And at that point in time, we had this yearling puppy, uh, mud, lost highways, mud, who was a, an absolute monster. He ran super hard and he bumped his birds with just as much enthusiasm and chased them all over Timbuktu. And I loved every second of it and I was fine with it. And, and, and I told this guy, this is what you got. Um, but he's going to be a great one. Uh, and I kind of almost tried to talk him out of him. I did not want to sell this dog, but he made me an offer and I took it. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from him that was not happy um, because the dog kept bumping birds. And I was like, well, this is, this is where I left him, you know, for you. I didn't tighten him up. And he actually sent that dog to John Han of Perfection Kennels, uh, to, to be screwed down. And, uh, and that dog has been one of the winningest dogs in our trial program since that time. And, uh, and the handler has forgiven me <laughs> and, uh, and things, th- things went, you know, swimmingly. So there's, um, you know, there's, you know, just, it's a nice to, to start seeing that lineage of dogs come on. And, um, with Ella's second litter, that was to a dog named Atos. And I got Atos while I was down in Charlotte for about six months. And I knew I had my hands on a very special dog. He was imported from Italy, uh, by my buddy Jackie. And, um, and I knew I had to make that breeding. So we got to it pretty early. Uh, and that produced my current dog, Pete, and Pete is, uh, he's a champion of the field, liberated, and with a braced wild wind will be a grand champion of the field. So he is, uh, he's done very well. He also earned his versatile champion title in NAVDA, which is a very, um, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, a very prestigious title for a dog to earn. And he's been just, he's not, he's a perfect split down the middle of Ella and Atos, um, and he's a, he's a wonderful dog. He's a great training dog. He's a great hunting dog. Uh, again, you know, probably not perfect in any one place, but just a great solid all arounder. Uh, and, and so I think Atos, uh, and Ella and Ithaca, who is Mud's father and Mud have really left their mark, um, in these last, oh gosh, getting longer now, seven, eight years, um, to 10, 11 years, um, in the, in the French Brittany world. And I hope they continue to, to, you see those dogs and pedigrees for many years to come. And I'm sure you will. Uh, and you know, I guess, you know, I think f- from there it's been kind of coasting, you know, I got one dog in particular that it really changed my life since Ella. And that's my, uh, my lab Althea, who, um, who I got in 2018 as, as we were moving into the house we live in now, she was in here on a place bed as a puppy <clears throat> watching me paint the walls. Uh, and it's a yellow lab from my friend Eddie and, uh, and, uh, Yadkin river kennels. Um, and she's just changed 
with me, right? She's the, the dog of kind of my, and that, even at five years old, she's kind of the dog of my forties at this point. Ella is obviously still around, still a wonderful dog and still a wonderful companion. Not quite, uh, the presence she was in the field a few years ago. And Althea is a different dog. She's a wonderful field dog. Um, but she's a, I think, you know, more importantly, like just a Velcro of a companion, uh, and can be called into action at any point in time. And, um, and so, you know, I, I appreciate who she is for me. And so those of you that follow me on social, you know, that Althea is my yellow lab, uh, and kind of constant companion. And, and the reason that you see her in more pictures than any of my bird dogs is because if I go out and I fire up the grill and Althea is with me, um, and I turn around and I don't pay attention when I turn around, Althea is still going to be there. And any and all of my bird dogs, uh, will be off looking for birds somewhere. And so I, I think, uh, in that ancestral DNA of our labs that started on, you know, the boats of, if you listen to Craig Koshik, uh, boats of, uh, Portuguese fishermen going back and forth to the new world from the old world. And they had to be lazy when it, when they needed to be, and they had to come into action and do work when they needed to be. And like a good lab should be that dog. And that's exactly what Althea is to me. And, uh, and as with the birth of my son, she's been his constant companion and, and the right kind of dog with the right kind of temperament to have around a kid like that and, and let him explore, uh, and teach him to be respectful of, uh, of the dogs as well. And so, um, and so that's it. So this is where I am. And those are the dogs in my life. And I hope that was, uh, I hope that was entertaining. I don't know. I, I I'm sure I did a lot of rambling there. Um, it was fun for me to kind of take that trip down memory lane. Uh, um, but, but that's, that's my story and told kind of through the dogs, uh, that I've lived with, um, all of my life. Uh, thank you guys as always for listening. Um, thank you for those kind ratings and reviews. And, um, if you, if, if you're liking the podcast, please consider leaving one of those and we'll catch you next time. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Oh,